Last night it came so clear. I realize you just need more time. Eventually you'll come to accept the idea of being here. Paul, do you know about the early days at the Kimberly Diamond Mines? Do you know what they did to the native workers who stole diamonds? Don't worry, they didn't kill them. That would be like junking a Mercedes just because it had a broken spring. No, if they caught them, they had to make sure they could go on working, but they also had to make sure they could never run away. The operation was called hobbling. Danny, whatever you think I'm not doing, please don't do it. Any for God's Shh, darling. Trust me. God's sake. It's for the best. Any, please! Almost done. Just one more. God, I love you. Hello and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that just happens to be following your car when you get into an accident and then nurses you back to health while simultaneously making you suffer even more. I'm Becky and I'm your number one fan. I'm Seth and I'm the host most likely to put on his Liberace records to inspire you. (laughs) And I'm Chris, the podcast host most likely to go to the feed store in town and say, Wally, give me a bag of that effing pig feed and 10 pounds of that bitchly cow corn. And then to the bank to tell Mrs. Bollinger, here's one big bastard of a check. Give me some of your Christing money. Look there. See what you made me do. Language, Chris. It's spooky season again. (laughs) This year's frightening flick that we'll be talking about for our Halloween episode is Rob Reiner's 1990 adaptation of Stephen King's book, Misery. This is not our first foray into the world of Stephen King. We previously discussed Stand By Me and the TV adaptation of It, starring Tim Curry on the podcast. We figured it being Halloween time and all, it was the perfect time to take a visit to not Derry, Maine, but Silver Creek, Colorado, to spend some time, a long, long time, with Annie Wilkes and her pet pig, Misery. <laughs> Let's get miserable. Let's get miserable. <laughs> miserable. <laughs> Back in the DeLorean, a Saturday morning And we both be cynical and radical But was it good cause we were young? Was it good cause we were dumb? Did we think it suddenly sucked? Now we're jaded and all grown up And there was so much that we loved Do we think it'll make the cut? Will it be a fantasy or will it be fun? Decades later, will it still hold up? This is when we were young When we were young Guys, I'm back from my maternity leave. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently in my absence, you talked about every creature movie ever made. (laughs) Yes, we did. We did not know when we were recording last time how long those episodes were going to be. Apparently you have a shortening effect on our podcast. (laughs) No one out there listening can understand how much we realized and recognize now that we need Becky. She makes it so that we occasionally stop talking. So I can talk. (laughs) You can stop talking. (laughs) It's a withering look, really. (laughs) 
sort of standing <laughs> over us with a sledgehammer occasionally. It's because I have uh, two children at home that need me and I need sleep. And you guys will just go on forever and ever. See, I don't even think two children would teach me brevity. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not sure that's a universal No, I think solution. I would, like, filibuster just to stay away from them as long as I possible. <laughs> well, I listened to part one and I made a few notes. <laughs> oh, no. Chris, I do not remember this enormous roach. It happened. It definitely happened. <laughs> but I am glad I buried it so deep into my subconscious that I cannot remember it because I don't want to remember that. No, it was horrifying. It was seriously one of the most frightening creature features I've ever had. I'd like to share my creature feature of my past is that I once got a bug in my shoe at camp. <laughs> I think it was a silverfish. And now I have to shake my shoes before I put them on. Still, to this day. You do a shoe shake? I do a shoe shake. You know what? You want to hear something? I do an occasional shoe shake. I, if I remember, which is often, to check my shoes, I, I'm sh- I'm shaking them. Yeah, I do a shower check and I do a shoe shake, and then I go on about my day. Guys, it was it was traumatic <laughs> at camp to have this. I this mean, silverfish are not silverfish aren't nothing. Why oh. isn't there a silverfish creature feature? That's what I want to know. Oh, <laughs> gross! The victims are library books. <laughs> I like tremors. <laughs> If anybody cared about my opinion about Tremors. I like Tremors a lot. I grew up watching it. I watched Arachnophobia as one of my stolen pay-per-view movies. And I watched it a lot. Even though I had Arachnophobia. And I don't know why I did it. And I remember being a kid telling people about arachnophobia and being like i've seen it a thousand times and i and i'm so scared of spiders i don't know why i watched it no it's perfect because you enjoy the thrill ride you know and it's a thing that you know will give you a thrill going on a roller coaster over and over and over like it provides that same thrill i totally understand why yeah maybe because it was like safe because it was a movie exactly i don't know exactly i'm I'm not gonna watch it today i don't want to tempt fate and and start thinking about all the spiders in my house it's so gross in fact it's even more gross now because we're not used to like real practical effects and they use like a ton of real spiders yeah i don't want i don't want that um and i've never seen congo so i have no opinion well surprisingly we love congo (laughs) well i want to see congo i feel like we need to watch congo together (laughs) so that is my my recap of your episode that's your becky follow-up mini so yes (laughs) (laughs) so i have a question before we get started talking about the movie today in the adaptation of misery starring you as annie wilkes what famous artist, actor, singer, or author is your Paul Sheldon? On advice of counsel, <laughs> I cannot answer this question. <laughs> Come on, Chris. Stalking charges are a thing. Like, I don't want a restraining order out on me. I'm Another used one. to being the Paul Sheldon, really. <laughs> so. Ooh, ooh, that's a good angle. That's a good angle. No, I actually was thinking about this in relation to this episode, sort of in the opposite way, is that I like go out of my way to avoid having to talk to people that I admire because I feel like I'm so awkward. Like, it just feels so unnatural because I met like a podcaster that I've listened to for, you know, 10 years the other day. And I have had a relationship. Parasocial relationship. Not a sexual relationship in my head, but like just a, she has spoken to me every week for 10 years and she has no idea who I am so it's like you don't know how intimate to be with them because like you technically know a lot about their lives but it is creepy if you just like come out with like oh I remember you said this and this and this you know and podcasters like especially people in like bigger shows are used to that and and know that they have that kind of relationship but it still is like a weird line and even with like other celebrities I've talked to some and I always feel like it's very awkward to figure out if you ignore 
acknowledge like how much of their work that you know and also you know i've worked in the film industry so i try and like also separate it and be you know like have that be like a professional relationship and like try and speak to them more as a peer but then you don't know if you're disrespecting them by like sort of pretending that you don't know like as much about them as you do so i always find it just such a strange thing that i'm like the opposite of a stalker is like i will see my favorite person and like run the other way (laughs) to avoid having to talk to them so basically they see you clock them and then throw your body in the other direction yeah yeah. Okay, I'm sure that's more subtle. I mean, the person when I was growing up probably would have been like Sarah Michelle Gellar, who played Buffy, or Laura Dern, maybe. Yeah, I, she was such a. She would have been like my mom. At the, I mean, I still kind of. She's like my second mom, just because. <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, well, Buffy for you. Yeah, it would be. Those ones are like I was too young. They would have just been adults, you know, and I was like a kid when I was like worshiping them. With like Sarah Michelle Geller, she's like quite a few years older than me, and I was a teenager and she was playing a teenager. So we could have had an actual kind of conversation in theory, you know, we were almost peers. But even then, I've like interacted with some of the cast of Buffy a little bit, you know, awkwardly. <laughs> I just think I do it awkwardly. So, like, yeah, with, with her, even with her, like someone that I would definitely be like, interested to meet her and and you know i've been at events where she is but i haven't like met her face to face but yeah i i don't think that i would go out of my way like i don't I go to a lot of Q&As where there's, like, actors. I don't tend to ask questions or, you know, at parties I've been to or receptions for films. Like, I don't tend to go up to even, like, my favorite filmmakers. Like, Paul Thomas Anderson is someone that I was, I saw, like, after The Phantom Thread. We were at, like, a relatively small party and, like, where I easily could have gone up to him. Like, he was standing right next to me, but I was still, like, I don't like to gush, you know? And it's, like, I feel like I have nothing original to say. Like, I would love to have a, a an hour-long conversation with them if I could and that that would be interesting but to just say like one or two sentences i feel like nothing i say is really gonna get out what i actually want to say so it just feels awkward i a hundred percent agree with several of those last minutes (laughs) you gotta name somebody he named somebody you also want to meet sarah michelle geller is that your takeaway from this and this is all fun and games we're not gonna stalk these people i do not wish to kathy bates people i don't wish i don't wish to any wilkes anyone the way you formulated the question i think was fascinating because you said like who would your paul sheldon be but we're not talking about who our Paul Sheldon would be. We, we're talking about who we would Annie Wilkes. I just want to ask who is like, if who I'm asking, who are you the number one fan of? There is a Broadway actor I love. His name is Raul Esparza. Um, and I would happily tie him to my bed and hobble <laughs> him so that he could sing for me on demand. I've been in, in love with this guy. I saw him in the Rocky Horror Show on Broadway when he played Riff Raff when I was 18. And his character was very, like, gothy. And I was, like, super into that. And he had, like, the best voice I've ever heard. And I was just like, who is this person? And then he played, a few months later, he was in Tick, Tick, Boom off-Broadway as Jonathan Larson. And I'm a huge rent head. And I went and saw him. And it's like, it's like, oh, my God, that's the guy that played Riff Raff that I was obsessed with, though I didn't even know his name really. And then I just became obsessed with him. And I lived on Long Island and he performed in the city. So like he once did a Broadway in the park that I knew he was going to be at. So I went into the city to see him. And then I, you know, tapped him on the shoulder and was like, I think you're amazing. We got a picture together. But then he kept performing in different plays and I would go see him and wait outside the theater to say hi. And I would always bring flowers. (laughs) And he got to the point where he would know my name and bring me backstage to just talk and like 
hang out and like show me the theater. And he was the nicest guy and the most talented person I've ever seen perform on stage or screen. I've never acted that way with anybody. Like, sure, like I had this like Gwen Stefani thing for a while or like this actor or that. But like I drove to D.C. twice one summer to go see him perform. I didn't have a car. <laughs> I'd like made my mom take me. <laughs> like, like I stole a car. Yeah. <laughs> I learned a hot wire. <laughs> yeah. Like I think I'm his number one fan. <laughs> like clearly I'm not going to like actually stalk him. But it's funny. Like my I have friends who've worked like in the Broadway like industry or agencies and stuff and they're like i have raul's address here it is and i was like don't give me that (laughs) like i'm not going to use it like i'm not gonna be that person but i could be that person (laughs) but i'm not going to but that is how much people know how much i like this person is they're like look at this look at like they text me whenever he's on tv or anything and i have not been like that with any actor like there's no there's no connection i have to anybody in movies or on tv that that I feel that passionately about, that they're just so good. And I've developed some sort of like real connection with them in real life too. Can confirm, by the way, because I heard about Raul Sparza my first week of college. And <laughs> not through organic means, but only through Becky. I mean, I think he's been in a couple of maybe like TV shows or, or movies. Yeah, he's but... like on Hannibal or was on Hannibal. He's, he's on some things. I don't he's think great. I've ever seen him act, but I know who he is. <laughs> yeah. uh, Becky, you introduced yourself to me as Becky Bain Esparza, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I thought I remembered that. The answer for me is obviously Fiona Apple. Oh, okay. That makes sense. She was a large part of the reason I moved to Los Angeles, as was Paul Thomas Anderson, as was Amy Mann, and as, like, John Bryan, too. So basically just the whole Magnolia, Paul Thomas Anderson <laughs> yeah, family. everyone who ever soundtracked or dated <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I'm their number one fan. I was a fan <laughs> of Fiona Apple from her first album, which came out in, like, 98, like, when I was in, like, freshman year of high school. Title. Still, I think, a pretty much perfect album, and have absolutely obsessed over every album she's ever released since then. I went to a club in LA called Largo every week for two and a half years. You sure Friday. did. You sure did. <laughs> Literally every Friday. Went to go see John Bryan because he had a Friday night residency at Largo at the old one on Fairfax by Cantor's. I miss that one. I miss it too. I will miss it forever. Because it doesn't exist anymore. Because it, yeah. Some like hipster pop-up shop or something now. I went there to this weekly residency because I heard that Fiona Apple would sometimes come there. When I started going there, I had did not realize and would not realize for two and a half years that she had been in the midst of a self-imposed exile from any <laughs> live performance because her record label had um, had basically shelved her completed album because they said they didn't hear a single on it. Was that Extraordinary Machine? Exactly. And she ended up re-recording it, but she had recorded the original versions with John Bryan. But, you know, in the process, I discovered John Bryan, who's like now probably my favorite musician alive, favorite producer. You know, it became something like a musical church. (laughs) And so by the time two and a half years in that Fiona Apple finally showed up to perform songs live for the first time in over three years, it just like felt like it was the right time for it to happen and I like I kept going after that of course because I like became addicted to going there yeah I got to have what I thought was one of the most amazing possible experiences and I like set out to do it and it took a very long time to do it (laughs) but Chris much like you I so easily get in my head about approaching someone I have that much admiration for and for whom my admiration is so complicated and heartfelt 
you're filling up a vessel that that person fills up every day or usually has overfilled against their will. And I don't want to like put that on someone, you know, unless that's something that they ask for and invite and reciprocate, you know? And I just don't hold as much value or merit for parasocial relationships as I do for like really social relationships. And it's hard to know the difference sometimes. It's hard to know the difference, especially now, because especially social media is seemingly intimate because of its extent of detail and the level of performance and actual content you can put into telling this story about who you supposedly are. But it's performative. And so all that you know on social media is you know about people. You don't really know them. Yeah, and I think I am very cognizant of, I think it's part of why I don't approach them is that sense that I could be perceived as an Annie Wilkes, Mm -hmm. like just by saying anything, even saying like something that's, you know, as benign as I'm your number one fan, (laughs) benign unless, you know, you mean it like Annie Wilkes does where she really means it. But, you know, you could always just make them feel uncomfortable. I guess I'm trying to avoid feeling like I might be one of those crazy fans, even though I really don't have that level of obsession with anyone. But for some reason, I'm still worried that it might come across that way. That's funny. I will go up to people that really mean a lot to me. If I ever see Gwen Stefani in person, I'm going to go up to her because she really does mean a lot to me. It's the people that I just recognize from something. I won't go up to them because what am I going to say? Like, hey, you're in that thing. A lot of people do that. You know, <laughs> yeah. And, people, annoying, and, I, and yeah. a lot of people do do that. And I find that strange. Yeah. It's very different going up to somebody and being like, hey, the thing that you made like really spoke to me and it really made me feel better. Or thank you for giving me, you know, laughter when I really need it. You know, something like that. I feel like that's more meaningful. And I would be happy to have that kind of, you know, depending on where they are. Like, I don't want to interrupt their dinner or something, but I would go up to them for that. But if it's just like, hey, you were on that show. Okay, keep being on that show. <laughs> no, see, what you describe is like, that's what I do. And I've done that, like, with, you know, John Bryan and Fiona Apple and, like, Tom York, like, literally every person in music or mm-hmm. movies, basically, that I would ever want to thank in that sense, mm-hmm. you know, or like just give kudos. Mm-hmm. Like, that I think is way different than fanning out or Annie Wilkesing. Yeah. And that, that I do, because that, that I feel is way less intrusive, you know, and it's like right. demanding less of them in the moment. It's kind of interesting that we all picked people who are performers versus like hmm. Paul Sheldon is an author, like a creator of stories. Well, I hate the written words. <laughs> that checks out. Which made me just think, like, honestly, I probably would have been more interested to meet, like, Joss Whedon at the time. Obviously, he has become someone who's, like, has a lot of problematic uh, things have come out about him now. But at the time, you know, mm-hmm. that was not public knowledge. So someone who created like my favorite stories or Kevin Williamson at the time who did like the Scream movies, probably, honestly, I would have been more excited to talk to them because I would have felt like I had more in common with them as like someone who was an aspiring writer at the time. Whereas like if it's an actor, sometimes they do a lot of roles. They don't always necessarily have a whole lot, you know. I mean, obviously, Sarah Michelle Gellar played Buffy for years, so she would have had a lot of stake, no pun intended, but kind of intended, uh, in that role. <laughs> intended. <laughs> intended. But still, it's there's something different about someone who's taking on a part versus someone who, I guess, creates parts, which is what I am kind of more drawn to, just because I can relate to it more. It's time for some misery. <laughs> Isn't it always? I'm your number one fan. There's nothing to worry about. You're gonna be just fine. I'll take good care of you. I'm your number one fan. 
So by 1990, Stephen King had already had quite a few film adaptations of his books. The biggest ones were Carrie, The Shining, Christine, Cujo, Pet Cemetery, and Stand By Me, directed by Rob Reiner. Just those. (laughs) (laughs) A lot. Stand By Me is based off the short story The Body by Stephen King. In case you're just like, you never wrote anything called Stand By Me. Rob Reiner started his career as an actor, most notably appearing as Michael Meathead Stivic on the long-running CBS sitcom All in the Family. It's a performance for which he won two Emmys. Despite his success as an actor, you could argue he was even more successful as a film director. His feature-length directorial debut was the mockumentary This is Spinal Tap in 1984. You guys have seen Spinal Tap, right? (laughs) I barely remember it, though. I think I've seen it once, but I've seen Christopher Guest other movies more oh really i mean it's a legendary movie for me and like if you ever get the chance to see spinal tap in a theater with a lot of other people go see that movie in a theater it's probably the best way to watch it honestly kills it absolutely kills um yeah i fucking love spinal tap so in the next few years after spinal tap he would direct stand by me the princess bride and when harry met sally all classics of cinema Pretty awesome run right there. Uh, I would disagree with one of those, but we'll save it for the inevitable episode about that one. All right. (laughs) They all have um, very devoted fan bases, and many people would consider them classics, regardless of whether Seth would. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So Stephen King originally didn't want there to be a film adaptation of Misery because he didn't think Hollywood would make a faithful adaptation. But after seeing what Rob Reiner did with Stand By Me, he said he'd allow it if Reiner was involved as a director or producer. So he really put his faith into Rob Reiner, uh, specifically for this movie. Because it's very interesting. This was the first time. Stand By Me is definitely like a drama. It has comedic parts but this is a a thriller a horror even which he is not known for in fact reiner studied hitchcock movies obsessively to learn how to shoot a thriller um, while he was making this movie so misery it was directed by rob reiner it was written by william goldman based on the 1987 stephen king novel goldman you might know is the screenwriter behind the princess bride butch cassidy and the sundance kid all the president's men a lot of other classics in cinema he's kind of like the screenwriter in a lot of ways uh for those Very who don't know so. he wrote a book called adventures in the screen trade that's for a long time and maybe still is, is kind of like the bible of hollywood as far as like known and beloved screenwriters of the 20th century he's probably number one is there anyone the more recent screenwriter that people know is like charlie kaufman Mm -hmm. when you think of a screenwriter today but like 20 years ago was william goldman misery stars kathy bates and james Kahn, as well as richard farnsworth francis sternhagen and lauren bacall it was released november 30th 1990 the budget was 20 million and the box office was 61 million the movie was nominated for and won one oscar uh, best actress for kathy bates she is the first woman to win best actress for her role in a horror movie she was up against joanne woodward angelica houston julia roberts and meryl streep stiff competition there misery has a 90 percent on rotten tomatoes at the time it got mostly positive positive reviews. Roger Ebert gave it three stars. He said, Many competent directors could have done what Reiner does here, and perhaps many other actors could have done what Khan does, although the Kathy Bates performance is trickier and more special. The result is good craftsmanship and a movie that works. It does not illuminate, challenge, or inspire, but it works. Kind of middling there. <laughs> Rita Kempley of the Washington Post. We're back on the Rita Beat. 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 I'm being paid for this, correct? Uh, she had a less favorable review. She wrote, Rob Reiner's mechanical adaptation of the Stephen King thriller never so much as asks us in for a cup of poison. A weak handshake of a movie, it is slightly repellent, 
hardly gripping, much less knuckle whitening. This psycho for fatsos is as self-aware as it is styleless. Psycho for fatsos. That's a good title. I'm the host most likely to be psycho for fatsos. I'm changing the Liberace thing. That's gone. I'm cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. You're a psycho for fatsos. <laughs> psycho, psycho for, for fats. fatsos. That is mean, Rita. <laughs> That's some of Rita's sharpest cheese right there. It's also hard to tell if she thinks it's like too macabre or not macabre enough. Like her, she seems like she's kind of on both sides of the fence there. So in the role of Annie Wilkes, Angelica Houston and Bette Midler were offered the part before it went to Kathy Bates. She was Mm. 42 at the time when the film was released. By this point, she had been nominated for a Tony and had won an Obie Award, but was definitely not known in Hollywood. And this was her breakthrough performance in Hollywood. Other actors offered the role of Paul Sheldon are... (gasps) Warren Beatty, Robert De Niro, Michael Douglas, Richard Dreyfuss, Harrison Ford, Jack Nicholson. I mean, it goes on. It's like pretty much everybody in Hollywood. The funny thing about Jack Nicholson is that James Caan had originally turned down the role of McMurphy in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which went to Nicholson, and he won an Oscar for that. And this time, Jack Nicholson turned down Misery, and James Caan didn't win an Oscar, but... (laughs) But he helped Kathy Bates win an Oscar. Yeah, he won. Yeah. (laughs) He saw Kathy Bates win an Oscar. (laughs) Isn't that a funny turn of history? (laughs) He was watching in bed with his legs broken. Another actor at the time that was offered the role of Paul Sheldon was Bruce Willis, who turned it down. However, there was a 2015 stage adaptation of Misery, and Bruce Willis got to play Paul Sheldon to Laurie Metcalf's Annie. I actually heard a little bit about this on one of the commentaries on the movie, and the reason that they gave that all those actors turned it down was that they were worried about kind of being seen as subservient to a woman like they are in bed being broken by a woman and she's definitely the star of the movie in terms Mm -hmm. of she gets a lot more to do and also is like very much in control of him and so i think there was a lot of hurt masculine feelings i think they didn't want to seem castrated yeah because all these men for the most part are like action men but i I was about to say that james con had to stay in bed for 15 weeks while filming and for most of the movie if not 90 percent of the movie he's in a bed or he's in a wheelchair. Yeah. And I think that's sad that that's what they based it off because I think this is a really meaty role. I think that's kind of sad. Good for James Gunn. <laughs> yeah. It's stupid male bullshit. It's just really like stupid male ego bullshit. And seriously good for James Caan. I mean, we'll talk more about it. But like, to me, I think his performance is kind of inseparable from this movie, too. So this is a very personal story to Stephen King. Paul's addictions and substance abuse are explored much more in the book, but King has said that Annie is a symbol of his addictions come to life, holding him captive and trying to kill him, that Kathy Bates' character is a representation of his dependency on drugs and what it does to his body and him trying to escape that. Stephen King, very famously, because he's very outspoken about his former drug use, did a lot of drugs. (laughs) And as you know from a lot of his books, he puts a lot of what he's going through in his books. What's interesting is that he wrote this book before he actually got hit by a car and was like in bed for an nearly died for many, many weeks, or like he was very gravely um, injured. That happened many years after this. So it's like almost like a misery came to life. That's crazy. He wasn't found by like, you know, his number one fan. I'm not sure who he was found by. It's just interesting that he was like later stuck in bed trying to recuperate for many, many months after writing about somebody going through that. And not just someone going through that, but a writer going through that and a writer who's going (laughs) through stuff that he had already gone through like <laughs> yeah it, it's very much an avatar for him as a lot of his characters are um did you guys watch misery growing up 
I did. I can't precisely pin down a memory of the first time watching it, but I'm pretty sure I was eight or nine. So, like, it was a time when I was already, like, watching some horror movies. I would tend not to go for the most violent ones that I could find. That would come, like, a couple years later. But I would still like to watch scary movies, especially. And my family loved this movie and would, like, reference hobbling (laughs) with some regularity. That's probably the first time I heard of the idea of hobbling. Oh, it's definitely. If not, <laughs> yeah. maybe that. Maybe this movie is where it came from. I don't know if yeah. we have misery facts about that. <laughs> My family would like make jokes about that all the time, and of course, we would all like interchangeably substitute just saying Kathy Bates instead of Annie Wilkes. Mm-hmm. I knew my family loved that movie, and so I, I'm pretty sure I caught it like on cable or something. I remember at the time and like the times that I've seen it throughout my life, like definitely really being scared by it, but I hadn't seen it maybe a decade or more. It's not that it wasn't a movie I liked or appreciated, but it wasn't necessarily something I wanted to throw on. And I definitely found it terrifying. I found it a very effective horror movie, like even as a kid watching it. What about y'all? I did not see very much horror until I was an older teenager. Um, I certainly did not see this when I was seven when I came out, or eight or nine, uh, which you were. But this movie always had, I think, a reputation, even among kids, because there was always some kids who had seen certain movies, this being one of them. I'm sure I saw the poster, which looks very horrific with like an isolated cabin in the woods. Sometimes there's a foot on the poster. (laughs) I don't know if it was the older poster or a newer one, but even the title Misery, you know, doesn't make it sound like you're in for a great time. (laughs) So I had definitely heard things about it. I think I knew something about an axe and a foot. And it might have been one of those movies my mom told me about before I saw it, which she did sometimes with like adult movies that I wasn't actually allowed to see, but I probably would like pester her with questions wanting to know the plot because I was already interested in like story and like what were the twists or, you know, what was what was the story about? But I did eventually see this. I'm not sure if it was my first Stephen King, because I would have seen The Shining and Cujo around the same time. But it was a fairly early horror film that I saw. I think I probably rented it in high school and watched it with my mom or something like that. And I think... Stephen King tends to be a very good gateway into horror for, if not kids, teenagers. This movie isn't super gory. There's a few pretty violent moments, but there's not a lot of violence in terms of, like, the number of of things that happen. Like, at least as a teenager, like, it's not a movie that's going to give you nightmares or make you wonder, like, could this happen to you? Like, it's a very specific kind of story. So, I liked the movie at the time. I've probably seen it four or five times since. I had recently watched it, like, a year ago or so. So, it hasn't always been, like, a major part of my rotation, but it's a movie that I'm always happy to revisit. It's pretty rewatchable, I think. Like, something you can easily, like, enjoy watching, you know, every few years or so. I don't remember remember when I first watched this movie, but this was definitely a movie that me and my mom and my sister would watch and quote. And I specifically remember he didn't get out of the cock-a-doody car being something that was said a lot in my house. Yeah, we a definitely, lot. we had that too with, with the anneisms. Yeah, definitely. It's something that would be on during the day and the lights on. So it wasn't scary, but we would just laugh at Annie Wilkes being batshit. <laughs> and then it went away. I didn't watch it for a while, but I think like 10 ish years ago, I must have picked up the DVD because I was like, I haven't seen this in forever. And now it's a movie I put on every Halloween season. My husband had not seen it until a few years ago. And now he watches it with me every single time. So I was able to see it through new eyes. We were able to share the cockadoo. 
beauty with yeah. him. It's so nice that you and your husband can have misery together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's on every Halloween season. And if we had not done it for this podcast, we would have put it on anyway. It would have been one of our Halloween movies. So I don't have a lot of distance from this movie. You could even say that you're this movie's number one fan. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't go that far. But what did you guys think of Misery? It does not make me miserable. I am not this movie's number one fan. Probably not even in the top thousand. But that doesn't mean (laughs) I don't like it. Okay. Um, I do enjoy it. I actually read the book this week and actually finished it like an hour before this podcast. So that gave me a really different perspective um, that I'm sure I'll like go into more specifics on later. But it kind of reframed this movie's approach in my mind. Did you like the book? Yes, the book is very interesting. It has a very different overall effect, even though a lot of the story beats are the same, like story that's about a woman, you know, that has control over this guy in a bed. And there's not that many like variations you can do on that story that are going to be different, you know, in terms of like plot, you know, there's not a lot of different things that they're going to add or subtract from that. But just the overall effect of the book is much more psychological, obviously, because you're reading instead of watching, but also just much more horrific. There's a lot of the addiction stuff, like you mentioned, there's a lot more misery in the book like reading the book is an actual like miserable experience he doesn't get his legs hobble like his feet hobble she she amputates him yeah she chops off his foot and later his thumb whoa and in graphic detail there's a different cop death this cop character isn't really in it and it's even worse than that it, like the way that he dies is oh like, isn't it with like a tractor or, so, or a lawnmower? lawnmower i read the book too <laughs> oh you did yeah okay like the book is so horrific that then watching this movie feels kind of tame in a way and i guess overall i'll just say like i think kathy bates's performance in this movie is the movie and that's not a surprise because that's the big takeaway she won the Oscar you know like when you talk about this movie she's the first thing that comes up I think everyone knows that but I think that around her there's a lot of stuff that isn't as strong so yeah I mean I I have a hard time now not seeing the movie that I kind of started seeing when I was reading the book that was a much more horrific movie and the cinematography is much more evocative of like the state of mind of the character and that kind of stuff Kathy Bates performance I really can't fault at all and I think that alone makes the movie worth watching and otherwise I think the movie is also still like a fine like fun movie to watch that just maybe is held back from being like a great horror film well I think Misery is overall a very well done Stephen King film adaptation I did not read the book because I did not know that we were supposed to do that homework (laughs) I I read it years ago (laughs) okay I feel slightly better now so I don't know what to weigh it against other than the movie itself I think it's a perfectly paced thriller like perfectly structured in every way. William Goldman and Rob Reiner, I think, did a tremendous job establishing like the rhythm and the dynamics of the tension in this movie, making it rise and fall so it's a lot more nuanced than if they had just amped everything up to 10 all the time and like kept repeating that same level of intensity. I think, you know, amputations would have been hard to do. So yeah, I mean, I can't fault it for not being quite as dark as the Stephen King original. Though I think there's definitely room for that you know especially if they were to make a new one like i would always want it to be a different take on the source material and hopefully bring something to it like more of its Stephen Kingness, you know i i think it's perfectly successful as a technical achievement in filmmaking i very much won't say i enjoyed watching it because i didn't enjoy watching it i had a triggering emotional reaction of anxiety 
and just actual terror, physical terror, watching this movie. Really? What what part? Just the whole, just being in bed? The, no, not the bed, the Kathy Bates of it all. And the abusive cycles that she goes through, through the movie, happen in a very specific pattern of waiting for Paul to say something wrong, you know, or something that, you know, violates her inner principles that she doesn't tell anyone, then exploding, then going into, like, self-loathing and demanding praise and affection and care from Paul. And that's a very typical abuse cycle, even though Annie Wilkes character, of course, carries it out in a lot of different and much more physicalized ways. That's a classic abuser cycle. I have realized, and in the work I've done in myself, that I've, you know, had relationships both working and personal with several abusive people and was subject to those exact cycles. So it's kind of crazy watching this movie and seeing how effectively they, like, nailed that process? Well, it's brilliantly written, but then everything you write is brilliant. Pretty rough stuff. The swearing, Paul. There, I said it. The, uh, the profanity bothers you. It has no nobility. These are slum kids. I, I was a slum kid. Everybody talks like that. They do not? What do you think I say when I go to the feed store in town? Oh, now, Wally, give me a bag of that effing pig feed and 10 pounds of that bitchly cow corn. And in the bank, do I tell Mrs. Bollinger, oh, here's one big bastard of a check. Give me some of your Christing money. There, look there. See what you made me do? Oh, Paul, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Oh, so... Sometimes I get so worked up. Can you ever forgive me? In terms of the ways that it's structured and, like, the ways that her character is written, I think it's kind of unimpeachable. Like, I think the writing of her character is pretty perfect. It's loaded in the sense where, like, I think it is probably terrifying to watch whether you know about abusive people or toxic cycles like that or not. But rewatching it now as someone who knows about the kind of psychological side of what she's doing, I found a much bigger appreciation of this movie, but also very much come away not knowing if I ever need to watch this again. Mm. <laughs> I love James Kahn's performance so much. I think he's a great physical performer and his physicality and the growing unease and sweatiness, <laughs> the sweaty terror of being there, I think is something that he wears very effectively. And it did pull me into like his character and help me buy into it, even though he's someone who seems kind of like a big shot, very mass media mainstream writer. But again, of course, this movie's very much defined around Annie Wilkes and what Annie Wilkes decides to do to the world. And I really do think that character is just brilliantly written and obviously brilliantly performed. That is a well-deserved Academy Award. I just think it's a very novel and modern take on a thriller. And I think it's like a psychological thriller in a way that it kind of doesn't get credit for. I had a lot of fun watching this movie. <laughs> so sorry it was like really hard for you because when I put on Misery, I'm like, 
I'm going to have a great time. It should be called fun. Fun. As I said, I have no like distance from this movie. So like I was not fully like immersed. Like I hadn't seen it in a million years because I just saw it last Halloween and have seen it every year in the last 10 years. So I wish that I could have like a more fresh experience, but I still had so much fun watching this. I can understand why they took out the amputation like it's not an a24 movie <laughs> you know it's not an a- Ari aster Ari, whatever his name is um <laughs> midsomar hereditary guy yeah it's not that movie he is a mainstream director it's rob reiner you know so the right. fact that he was able to do what he did in what is a mainstream horror movie um i think is great like he made a a, a great horror movie for the masses um, i think he made a very Hitchcock horror movie like that absolutely makes sense that he was watching a lot of Hitchcock because yeah. it just feels so much like that and and he's not somebody who's gonna make you know Blue Velvet or something much darker and creepier like he's a mainstream guy so mm-hmm. for what this is I think it's great I find what I get out of watching this movie is as somebody creative I find it so invasive this feeling that somebody is making you be creative on demand and yeah. being vi- like you have to do your best work under very stressful situation because like the act of writing if you're an artist feels very like intimate and pure you have to have struck inspiration and like it's just this very like private like beautiful thing deep down and then somebody's like it's like somebody's got a gun pointed at you that's like write write an amazing poem (laughs) like now (laughs) you know like (laughs) it gives me the creeps and i don't know if either of you felt that watching that but like for me that's like this invasive feeling that gives me the creeps yeah the relationship that the movie and the book have with writing although kind of different are are very interesting because he is a romance writer basically and you look at james con and just like kind of his persona Mm -hmm. and it's like not someone you would expect to be writing like romance novels that are set in like 1800s victorian in England, you but it know. sounds like he didn't even really want to do that. He probably like took some, you know, um, yeah. some gig, and then it was a hit. Right. So he he kind of became like a James Patterson kind of. I feel like by exactly by that was the name. I didn't want to call him out specifically, but yeah, James yeah. Patterson, <laughs> someone yeah. who's just kind of churning out books and. You know, I don't know if this is true about James Patterson, but wishing that like he could be acclaimed for something more serious, you know, and he's just finished a novel that he does think is a much better, like more personal novel that she then makes him set on fire so he mm-hmm. can write a misery book. Instead. That also got to me. <laughs> Right, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, as a writer, like, having to burn the only copy of your writing, that's the real horror. Like, (laughs) take my legs, but but don't make me do that. But it really is. Like, I think that they're really touching on creative people and artists. Like, if you were, like, what if you just painted something that is so personal to you and you went through hell to paint it and then somebody burns it? (laughs) Well, and the, the movie opens with showing us how much this particular book means to him you know Mm -hmm. the first scene is him finishing this book and doing his you know book finishing ritual of a glass of champagne and a cigarette Mm -hmm. you know and he like talks to it's his agent on the phone right he talks to his agent on the phone who's lauren bacall and you know expresses how like he's like this is the book you know and seeing him as a character who you can already tell hasn't been this excited about his work in a really long time and it feels like a change for him to like escape the drudgery of you know that thing that he's now been pigeonholed for i was a writer then you're still a writer i've been a writer since i got in the misery business not a bad business 
And it would still be growing, too. The first printing for Misery's Child was the most ever. Over a million. Marsha, please. Misery Chastain put braces on your daughter's teeth and is putting her through college. Bought you two houses and floor seats to the Knicks. And what thanks does she get? You go and kill her. I never meant for it to become my life. And if I hadn't gotten rid of her now, I'd have ended up writing her forever. Now I'm leaving for Colorado to try to finish the new book. If I can make this work, I might just have something I want on my tombstone. Well, and he's just killed the Misery character in the last book. So he thinks he's escaped. And it's funny because there are a lot of authors out there who will do things like that, like kill off their lead character. Even like the Oz books, you know, that we talked about in the Wizard of Oz episode back in 1900 was the first one, like, L. Frank Baum, the sixth book, he tried to like cut off communication. He like wrote that there was like going to be no more communication between him and Oz and fans demanded it. And he had to like go back and write these books. So this is like a really old phenomenon, you know, that has a ton of resonance that I think we'll talk more about too of fan culture. I feel like what happens with any Wilkes is an exaggeration of what was probably happening throughout his career of fans demanding write more. We want more of this. And it's just like you know, a metaphor for what that felt like in his career. I think it can also be a metaphor for the writing industry and like people, you know, deadlines and the kinds of things that are imposed on you Mm -hmm. if you're an author at that level. You know, like Becky, you talked about, you know, writing and creating and approaching it from the like perspective of intimacy and of opening yourself. But like for a writer at like a Stephen King level, like that has to be ultimately kind of subservient in a way to the business of the writing. And yeah, Stephen King said that this was like a metaphor for addiction, which is definitely like played up more in the book. But I think like since the movie doesn't really have that angle, it feels just like a metaphor for writing. And the process of writing is that you are stuck in a room. (laughs) Chained to your desk, chained to your typewriter. And it's very isolating and can be very like anxiety inducing. And you have like whether or not you actually have someone like Annie Wilkes, you are thinking of the audience Mm -hmm. and what they demand or what they want from you and you know what you want to write might not be what you think is going to like appeal to your fans you might have to make compromises so I think the overall story is such a great metaphor for the process of writing and being removed from the world you have to kind of if you're going to be serious about writing a project you have to turn down you know going out sometimes and things with your friends and so it kind of mimics that experience of being taken away like he literally can't contact like his friends or family or anything but that is that is what it's like just like yeah being being stuck in a room with your typewriter and hopefully not a crazy lady but (laughs) you never know kathy bates is great in this (laughs) i know we already kind of talked about that but when i think of her in this movie i really do think of the the cockadoodie car monologue and just like all those really funny moments where you're awkward laughing because it's such a dark comedy and i just think she plays it so well what a great find hollywood <laughs> when I was growing up in Bakersfield, my favorite thing in all the world was to go to the movies on Saturday afternoons for the chapter plays. Cliffhangers. I know that, Mr. Man. They also call them serials. I'm not stupid, you know. Anyway, my favorite was Rocket Man. And once it was a no breaks chapter. 
And the bad guy stuck him in a car on a mountain road, knocked him out and welded the door shut and tore out the brakes and started him to his death. And he woke up and tried to steer and tried to get out, but the car went off a cliff before he could escape. And it crashed and burned and I was so upset and excited. And the next week, you better believe I was first in line. And they always start with the end of the last week. And there was Rocket Man trying to get out. And here comes the cliff. And just before the car went off the cliff, he jumped free and all the kids cheered. But I didn't cheer. I stood right up and started shouting, this isn't what happened last week. Have you all got amnesia? They just cheated us. This isn't fair. He didn't get out of the cock-a-doody car. Yeah, I think it was William Goldman who actually had seen her on Broadway and, and got her this part. Basically, he like, told Rob Reiner, like, you need this person. But they were open to it because, like, it makes sense that Paul Sheldon is played by someone recognizable and she's played by someone who's, like, a nobody at this time. Can you picture Bette Midler as Annie <laughs> Wilkes? Not no. in a good way. I can. Honestly, I can, but it's not good. She's already singing and dancing in my imagination. <laughs> I'm just picturing her with, like, the bright red lipstick and, like, the, like curls. And a stage spotlight on her. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think you need someone who is a stage actress, which I didn't really know that much about Kathy Bates's career before this movie until I was watching special features and stuff with her. But I think it makes a lot of sense because you can tell that she's done so much work and she had already played someone, I think, who was suicidal. So she'd already kind of done a lot of research on that. So she kind of brought that with this. But she brings so many different shades to this performance. She, like, when she's excited that like she's saying like misery's alive like she's so joyful and I like smile when I see that like like genuinely like smile because she's so joyful but then there's other moments you know she can be very like girlish you know and and very like almost like she's like a 10 year old girl who's like you know being like kind of naughty or and then she's sometimes very righteous and kind of like a super Christian like moralist and then she's like a teenager in love like in puppy love yeah yeah all of those things, what you just said, but I like the scene where they included where she's just kind of like, here you go. And she's like super depressed and just like, it's not like she's being her like threatening self in many scenes. It's just like, I don't like the rain. And I'm just like, that's an interesting shade of just like how messed up this person is that she's not oh, just yeah. like a villain, you know, like she's just like, she's having a really depressing episode right now where she doesn't even want to deal with Paul, like not even threaten him, but just be like, whatever. Yeah, you could, I mean... I think you could deconstruct, like, almost every scene of this movie that she's in and, like, just, like, dig into the psychology there. There was a um, special feature on the movie that was diagnosing all her many different <laughs> um, issues with a psychologist. And so, like, some of the ones that were pointed out is she's, like, psychotic and delusional. Um, she believes God has spoken to her. Um, she commits violence in the name of God, like many crazy people do. Uh, she's paranoid. She thinks everyone's out to get her. She's suspicious of Paul, which in a way she should be because he is trying to escape. But she's always like trying to think of different ways that, he, of, that he's going to do things to, to her or try and get away. She has delusions of grandeur. She thinks like she's going to get all this glory from helping him write his book, that she's going to get all the attention from it. Delusional love. Like she thinks, you know, that he's that they could be together. You know, she has these very weird you know, unrealistic expectations of what love is. She's hypomanic. She can be full of energy and joy. And then she like has a crash that's like a depressive episode. She's a personality disorder, which is like having a negative effect on the people around her. And so like- A negative effect. <laughs> well, on him, but even just like yelling at people in the street, you 
know, like yeah. she doesn't get she doesn't get along with people. She's repressed, you know, she, the words that she uses, like in her clothing. She has a very repressed sexuality. You can kind of feel like she doesn't kind of own herself. You know, she's like, I think she's repressing like homicidal tendencies and that becomes part of it. And she has an inability to take responsibility for her actions. Like she always is blaming him for things that she does to him because he made her mad, which is like mm-hmm. you were saying, like a very abusive thing is to blame the other person for making yes. you abuse them. And she's suicidal <laughs> in many different ways of like, you know, and sometimes it's going to be like a murder suicide. Sometimes it seems like she might just like kill herself. Dirty bird. How could you? She can't be dead. Misery Chastain cannot be dead. Annie, in 1871, women often died in childbirth. But her spirit is the important thing, and Misery's spirit is still alive. I don't want her dead! I want her! And you murdered her! No! I didn't. Who did? No one. She, she died. She just slipped away. Slipped away? Slipped away? She didn't just slip away. You did it. 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 You murdered my misery. I thought you were good, Paul. But you're not good. You're just another lying old dirty birdie. And I don't think I better be around you for a while. And don't even think about anybody coming for you. Not the doctors, not your agent, not your family. Because I never called them. Nobody knows you're here. And you better hope nothing happens to me. Because if I die, you die. She's very unpredictable. And even though it's maybe not realistic that one person would have all these things, I mean, that's why it makes her such a great villain is because you never know what she's going to do. Yet it all feels grounded in things that you see real people do. Like you could you could know people that have some of these traits, you know, in your in your personal life. Yeah, but to be fair and to hopefully avoid contributing any stigma to the mentally ill, most mentally ill people, particularly most people who have those particular traits about them or those neuroses or those even those diagnoses, the vast majority of those people are never violent toward anyone. And if they do hurt anyone, it's most likely going to be themselves. And they, you know, they push that because it's a horror movie. They want you to feel scared. Right, exactly. But I think that's what makes it scarier is that it's rooted in real behavior. Like you could just make someone crazy and psycho in like a kind of generic way, but because it has all these roots in real behavior, obviously her behavior is very extreme. This is not the only thing she's done. She's killed many people before this. Like you see it like in the scrapbook that she has. So she is like, almost like a a like Michael Myers almost she she's kind of like especially in the end of this movie she's like almost invulnerable or like a Hannibal Lecter almost yeah I forget in the book, is she like a murderer in the book, like before she meets Paul? Mm-hmm. I kind of wish that she was pushed to extremes because of Paul, not that she was just like this like serial killer. And then Paul comes into her life 
physically. Like, I almost wish it was like, it's not really a coincidence because I think she moved to where she knew that he would like finish his books like in his cabin and was like just following him around. So it's not very a coincidence, but the coincidence is that he gets into an accident and then she's there to help. I kind of wish that there wasn't like a whole scrapbook full of like my crimes, (laughs) you know, like I would want her as a character to have all these issues, but maybe not have all this, you know, oh my God, she's a murderer, you know, because I would think it's because of Paul that she would go to these extremes. Does that make sense? The way she's described in the book, she's almost even more like a monster. Like she has like these moments where she just like shuts down and like he describes her eyes as like becoming black and stuff. And it's almost like she's possessed sometimes. So in the book, it makes sense that she has like this history because Kathy Bates plays her she's much more likable even though she's obviously not the most likable character but (laughs) you actually like and she's fun to watch not so much in the book she's just kind of like a monster like a very interesting monster but she's just like horrible throughout the book and you know that from the very beginning instead of in this movie you know there's a long period where she could just be like a nice lady who's trying to help she's like trying to hide the fact that she's basically like a psycho who's kidnapped him but I think that the scrapbook isn't necessary in that way and I kind of agree with you that it would be more interesting if this was something that like more developed and that this was kind of became like the height of her mm-hmm. psychosis I guess or, or her psychotic behavior but I think it's probably necessary just from like a aesthetic point of view just because if she wasn't a killer in the past I think it would be hard to justify like him eventually having to like basically kill her and like I think the optics of that would look different and, like you kind of have to know that she's like a very bad person person she just hobbled him <laughs> Well, like, so also, like, Becky, to your point, I think that if he had, if Paul had released the misery book where she dies, where that character dies and this the whole series ends, if he had released that before the movie begins. He did. He did? Yeah, that's the book she picks up. She's like, your new book is out. But she's okay, only it reading it. Out. She's only reading it. She's only yes. just now yes. reading it. That's my point. If she had read it before the movie right. started, yeah. then that could have pushed him over the edge. I wish that yeah. she hadn't gotten to that point of killing people. Like, get rid of all that. And then she's just like kind of crazy, you know, doesn't get help for what she, you know, her depression and psychosis. And then she has this obsession with Paul and then she happens to save him. And then she's just kind of escalates like there. She doesn't need this past of being a serious killer yeah and that scrapbook felt really hitchcock but on nick at night hitchcock (laughs) (laughs) hitch at night yeah also a big rob reiner hollywood note yeah in the book she like leaves it out on purpose because she wants him to be more afraid and she's almost like bragging and i think it works in that sense and i think it's also just been such a trope that we've seen copied maybe from even this movie i don't know if it was done a lot before this movie but it's definitely been done afterwards it's like here is the scrapbook of all the people i've killed what do you do now if you're a serial killer now you just have bookmarks you got it it's a <laughs> like, fake fake facebook profile it's a finsta yeah <laughs> i want to talk about richard farnsworth i like his character early on we also meet buster the wise old town sheriff played by the perfect richard farnsworth <laughs> who exists merely to solve the local town's mysteries and have a fabulous mustache and a snazzy snow cowboy outfit he and his wife virginia who is his deputy his wife is not jessica tandy who i wrote down first no. it's funny It's Bunny and it's Cliff Clavin's mom on Cheers. He and his wife, Virginia, are the town's police force. (laughs) And she feels him up and comes on to him while she's driving them around in their iconic 1972 Chevy Blazer truck. 
I did not notice <laughs> the apparent Iconic. sex scene. I love movie characters like this, and I believe more of them should exist in all genres. Well, like old people in love? Yeah. Who are cute together? Hor- horny, like silly, but also wise old people who go around solving mysteries. It's Jim Taylor. He wants to know who you're having an affair with. Uh, hello, Jim. Let's do it. Jim, we've been through this before. If you're going to have benches out in front of your store, people are going to want to sit on them. Well, I don't like him either, but I'm not going to come over there and tell him to move. I'll give my best to Denise. Bye. Well, whoever she is, she sure likes to read a lot. Virginia? I'm flattered that you think I've got that much energy. I figured that if I can't find Paul Sheldon, at least I can find out what he wrote about. What do you expect to find? A story about a guy who drove his car off a cliff in a snowstorm? You see, it's just that kind of sarcasm that's given our marriage real spice. I like that he's smart. He is a smart detective. Yes. And he find he finds yeah, him. He finds them and he's the only one who like tries yeah. to solve it. And I must admit this movie is copaganda, but it worked. I did not like the sheriff <gasps> character. Really? You're I like, wrong. I like Richard Farnsworth and I think like their banter is fine. Like it's it's amusing, but it just felt very sitcomish and very like Matlock or something like Really? You know why I like it? Because it's like there's a ticking clock. He has to find him before Annie gets to him and kills Paul. And then he's smart. He like is actually like looking through Paul's books and like he's a good detective. And then he finds him and you think that like that's gonna be it, like, but no, he's dead. Like it's it's like a very Hitchcocky and like red herring, if that's the right term, um, where he ends up not helping at all. <laughs> yeah, I just think it like kind of kills the claustrophobia because you're always like cutting out of the house instead, and like there are these like really comedic scenes that I feel like they make this movie like a much more like fun, like lighthearted movie, but I don't think they make the movie all that much more lighthearted. I just think they momentarily break the unbearable the tension, tension yeah. which I don't really want. I want oh. it to be a tense yeah. movie. But it's yes. not that type of movie. It's a mainstream movie where the the audience needs that tension break. And I think they do need to think like somebody is is helping him and we're rooting for this guy to help Paul. And I think Paul needs to know, oh, my God, somebody was helping me and now they're gone. And then it's all up on me now. That's where his hope for somebody helping him is gone. Yeah, I just didn't think it had anything like thematically to do with anything. I wish that maybe he had like teamed up more with like Lauren Bacall because she knows his book so well and they could have maybe like uncovered some clues together. Like it just felt very convenient. Like everything that he found out was right there and obvious. Like there just wasn't really much of a mystery to solve. It wasn't really convenient and obvious. He was just good at his job. I appreciated that all of the evidence and stuff that he finds, most of it at least, is just based on the town itself, you know? Because, like, he is the kind of avatar of remote urban life, you know? And I think it feels of a piece with the rest of these characters. But I also totally agree with Becky that a movie like this needs breaks from that tension. For a movie like this to be a hit, you would not be able to have it be just the Kathy Batesing for an hour and a half. Like, no one would want to watch that. I would. Yeah, you would. I believe that. I was thinking of how to make this movie creepier. 
And I feel like if he just kept losing parts of his body, like slowly, (laughs) like maybe he has to write like a lot of books about misery. Maybe he's there years. But I feel like, again, not a mainstream movie. (laughs) (laughs) Becky's like, here's the gritty, dark reboot of misery. Here's the A24 version. (laughs) Even I'm not going that dark. No, I think think some of like the changes, like not cutting his foot off, but hobbling him. I think that's a good change. You know, like I think it doesn't have to be more gory or more horrific in that sense. But I do wish like the cinematography was more like scary. Like I think of like the way like David Fincher would like maybe direct this like a seven kind of movie or something like that. Like and just like play that up. And I also I'm going to upset you, but I I think James Caan is kind of miscast in this role. I don't think he's my favorite choice for this. I think he's like too confident. Like I never really believe that he's not going to get out of the situation because he just always feels like James Caan, like he's got it together. And I would wish that someone who is more vulnerable was in the role. I know a lot of people turned it down. Obviously, they they tried to get various people, although most of them also don't seem like they would have been really that type. It's probably hard to think of a male star at that time who would have been great at playing vulnerable because they didn't really do that very much. But Mm -hmm. just someone who is like more writerly and more like nebbishy and that you can really feel like suffering. Like I I just don't really feel that. And especially like after the hobbling, like it doesn't seem like that really affects him. Like he's not any worse after that. He's getting around this house pretty easily. Like he comes up with like these plans pretty easily. Like, I don't know. It's I guess I just wanted this to be more of like a horror movie or a psychological horror movie, which it, it ends up feeling more of like a 90s thriller, like a sleeping with the enemy or kind of single white female like oh, it I, I don't know that. I really disagree like in the way that you characterize James Conn is like having an easy go of it every single inch of movement he makes in this movie is like super hard one you know like the scene I, I had to note down like the scene especially where Paul picks the lock on his bedroom door with a bobby pin I thought was so great and so suspenseful that was like one of the only breaks that he had in starting to be able to explore the house and see where he actually was. Like, he would just been completely isolated to that bedroom for so long. He doesn't even know that it's going to work. Like, he had no idea if it was going to work or not. And he, like, mentions that kind of half-offhand at the very end of the scene. And that whole sequence intercuts with Annie driving back from town. And also, like, I loved that in that whole sequence, his wheelchair, like, barely fits through most of the doors in the house. And he has to, like, pull himself on and off the wheelchair so many times like i i thought his performance was great and i thought he was very vulnerable but mostly just in his eyes i connected with that because when you deal with abusive people you have to monitor your own composure and your own countenance so carefully that you control every single pore on your own body so that you don't do anything in the moment to drive that person even worse and like make them go you know even more on the attack and you see him do that like throughout this movie and to me like you definitely see the kind of hope fade from him and i do think that his character obviously starts to see pretty early on that he's well fucked like very very fucked but i don't think that he has an easy time of it and i don't think that he's you know like a blank slate as far as like expressing how he's feeling about that 
I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle, but I'm more in favor of his performance. But I also would be intrigued to see how some, like if there was a reboot or something, like how somebody else would play it. Because I think I see what you're saying, Chris, but I've seen this movie so many times and I just think James Caan is his role. Like that's just what it is, that it's hard for me to picture somebody doing it a different way. Right. And I, I think I was there with you like the last time I watched this movie. And it's only because we're doing this podcast now where I have to think, you know, more mm-hmm. critically about it. And also because I just read the book. So I just was presented with Mm. an alternate take. Like I realized you can't like make the book, you know, exactly like there's a lot of things you have to change and you don't want it to be as torturous as the book is. Even the book is almost like too much to take at times, especially to read it as quickly as I did in just like a few days. But there are things that I kind of wish had been a little bit more emulated and it just I don't think his performance is bad, but it's more just like the casting of him. I feel like he's just like too much of a like masculine, like kind of who would you cast? It's really hard to think. If you could like, do anybody at any point. Oh, if, at any point. Like, at this era, I was kind of thinking maybe like a Tim Robbins kind of, someone who feels a little... So you're less. thinking more like bookwormy kind of guy? Yes. Yeah, like people that like are more Stephen King-like, I guess. I, I like James Caan and the fact that he's like an everyman, like a Bruce Willis or something, because he's not like Mr. Muscles. And also part of his story is that he comes from like the really poor neighborhoods and he had oh, to be right. a tough kid. So yeah, I like that. Well, I agree with both of you entirely that I'd like to see a version of this story that had a different actor with a totally different take on this character. I feel like James Caan's performance, less so than Kathy Bates, but it is kind of inseparable from this movie because it really hasn't been rebooted at all. But much like Hannibal Lecter and Anthony Hopkins changing over to like Mads Mikkelsen for the Hannibal TV show. I don't think you could imagine it another way until you saw another actor doing it mm-hmm. differently. Yeah. You know? Yeah, there's a lot that you probably couldn't do in a 1990 movie, especially one that's not being sold as like horror horror. That too. Yeah. And in the in 1990, horror was in a kind of a weird place where it was like all like Freddy Jason sequels. Like it hadn't been kind of elevated to what it would become a little bit later. But I think also like the room just isn't very claustrophobic. Like I just kind of wish like the setting w- felt like had more of that in there too like it- oh i thought it felt very claustrophobic but more effectively so in the framing like the, of the cinematography and especially between that and the editing and the way that like in the course of scenes it would cut in closer and closer and closer and closer and closer until it was like just people's faces yeah, I don't think that, like, Rob Reiner is really my favorite choice of director for this movie. Stephen King wanted it. <laughs> he did, and that's fine. But, like, even Rob Reiner himself said he didn't like filming the horror scenes. Like, he basically, like, hated filming, like, that, like, last confrontation scene. Like, he didn't want to do it. He knew he had to do it for this kind of movie. But, like, I, I do wish that there was someone who liked to revel a little bit more in that or, like, play a little bit more with, like... Like, it, that scene, I like that scene, like, the fight scene. There's a lot of, like, fun, kind of brutal stuff in it. And, and the way that they make her look very, like, monstrous mm-hmm. when she's, like, covered in blood. I like that. So it doesn't shy away from anything. But I do think that there's maybe a way that that could have been, like, more fun. You know, that, like, someone could have had more fun with that sequence or, like, extended it out a little bit more. On the other hand, I'm like, maybe you don't get Kathy Bates' performance from a different director who's, like, more of a horror director. Like, I thought of, you know, you could see, like, David Cronenberg 
Spielberg doing a version of this that's much mm-hmm. more body horror. Oh, for sure, actually. And so, yeah. you know, maybe that's the movie that I kind of want to see, but he's also not always getting as strong performances out of people. So if I have to choose between that or, like, getting Kathy Bates' performance, I probably still want Kathy Bates' performance. And Rob Reiner, as an actor, like, probably, I don't actually know that much about his directorial style, but I'm guessing pays more attention to performance and maybe let her do a performance that, you know, another director might not have. So ultimately, like, I'm good with it, but I think that there's a lot of ways that it could be stronger, especially if you're looking for it to be scary or looking for it to be a horror film. I I loved her love confession, the moment around the third act when she, like, confesses her love to him. But then she talks about how, like, she knows he's going to go away. He's going to get away soon. And in the middle of that scene, she says very offhand, your legs are getting better. (laughs) And that was like so fucking menacing when you know what's coming because that happens before the hobbling, slightly before. Oh, yeah. I don't know how I feel about, like, I, I... In a way, I wish the love stuff wasn't in here as much because it feels a little bit more typical and a little bit like it's in there because she's like a female character and she's like kind of a dowdy woman. And I feel like just the like worship of him as an author is enough that I don't necessarily need it to be like where she also wants to be with him. Disagree. Really? Yeah, I totally disagree. Because I think that's scarier for the person on the receiving end. so much scarier. Is that it's not (laughs) just my writing. They want to be with me. They want to consume your body. They they think (laughs) they know me so well that they love me and I could love them. Right. I think that's creepy. In the scene where she kind of recreates his book finishing ritual of the champagne and the cigarette, she like doesn't even know how to pronounce Dom Perignon. Um, Neither do I. (laughs) (laughs) She doesn't even know how to pronounce the name of the champagne. Put it in great. Right. Um, <laughs> there are these other moments in the movie where Paul's character kind of half hints at how he understands that she doesn't know him, but like over and over, she just proves both her encyclopedic knowledge of him and every single thing about him, up to and including his own private authorly rituals but she doesn't have any idea who he is as a person and she doesn't have any idea how to support his creativity and help him actually create to the best of his ability and yeah i feel like that obsessive love of hers for him is equally as important as her obsessive love with his creativity and his his work that he's done Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about how this movie is prescient about, like, fan culture, which, you know, has always been there, like, I mean, back to the Oz books, but um, it's obviously become something very different now with, like, Twitter and the internet and fans having more ability to interact with creators and even, like, studios. You know, I I think studios are, in some ways, like, reading Twitter and trying to figure out what fans want, and this movie is about hashtag restoring the Miseryverse. (laughs) We do not endorse that hashtag, I'm sorry. No, we don't, but we don't endorse (laughs) Annie Wilkes either. And just the way that fans feel like they have ownership over creators and their stories and that they want this influence, and even certain studios, like, like Warner Brothers with the DC stuff or Disney, I think, does this a lot. Like they think that fans want these remakes that they're doing and mm-hmm. maybe they're right because people are watching them. But like that doesn't create good content at all. It, you know, it creates like really bad stuff in the on the whole. And you want to like 
kind of listen to fans at least and take in what they're saying but you also have to like shut them out at a certain point as a creator and it's interesting now that there's just so many things like Star Wars and the Justice League movies and stuff that have such influence from fans that almost feels like fans are like co-writing this stuff and so I just thought the way that this movie kind of already was portraying that as a kind of a toxic and impossible relationship was pretty interesting can like can you imagine Annie Wilkes on Twitter because I can (laughs) hashtag one fan is it fair should I continue you better oh Paul when Ian realized that the reason they'd buried misery alive was because the beasting had put her in that temporary coma and when Gravedigger Wilkes remembered how 30 years earlier the same thing had happened to Lady Evelyn Hyde oh, and then old Dr. Cleary deduced that misery must be Lady Evelyn Hyde's long lost daughter because of the rarity of deadly bee stings my heart just leapt <laughs> I've known from the very first book that misery had to be born of nobility and I was right yeah <laughs> oh Paul can I read each chapter when you finish I can fill in the ends will she be your old self now that Ian has dug her out or will she have amnesia have to wait. Will she still love him with that special, perfect love? You'll have to wait. Not even a hint? Mm-mm. Oh! Misery's alive! Misery's alive! Oh, it's so romantic! Oh, this whole house is gonna be filled with romance! Oh, I'm gonna put on my Liberace records. I think it's worth making a note of just like how groundbreaking Kathy Bates' performance was just in terms of like both making a woman the villain and also like a woman like this the villain. You know, like we'd obviously had things like Fatal Attraction before, but she's a very different kind of woman. And also just like how her winning this Oscar, I think kind of ushered in different kinds of roles for women becoming like more respectable and more desirable for women. Because before this, a lot of like Oscar winning performances were, you know, like even still like love interests or moms or ingenues yeah a lot of different kind of stuff like that there wasn't anything like this i mean there was the closest thing i think is one flew over the cuckoo's nest with nurse ratchet but even she is like debatably a villain she's she's also kind of just doing her job (laughs) she's not debatably a villain She's literally on, like, the lists of, like, the best all-time villains. She has, she is debatably a villain, because she is also just being a nurse. But <laughs> No, she's... I, I'm sorry. Again, this is not how that character is this seen. This is a debate. We are debating it. <laughs> I understand what you mean. Okay. Um, do, you, do you mean in terms of just, like, a matronly woman? Yeah, well, in a way, like, getting, like, unattractive. Like, she's overweight, you know, she's not meant to be conventionally attractive in the beginning, but you, but then she gets, like, beat the fucking hell out of and, like, made, like, really monstrous in the end. And I think that kind of, like, even ushers in, like, room for, like, Charlize Theron and, like, Monster or something like that. That this is, like, a really big moment of, like, women both being kind of this kind of villain character that isn't like based in sex and sort of seduction and also like being so physical in in this way. It's more interesting to me that Kathy Bates of it rather than the character because she is, as I said, a matronly 40-ish year old woman who doesn't dress sexy and has a very meaty role that is the lead versus the kind of role it is. It's she's the lead and yet she's not an ingenue. She's not 
25 years old. She's not boobs out, you know, waist sucked in. And that, I think, is more remarkable. And she won. Yeah, but I see what you're saying, Chris. But I think she kicked open more doors for Kathy Bates than she did for, like, all female actors. I don't think that she, like, changed the course of the industry in terms of giving more leading roles to less conventionally attractive women, you know? Like, I don't I don't think that's a thing that Hollywood's ever moved past. No, I wasn't saying that. I okay. think just making women be like not desirable not moms not those kinds of roles but that being like a role that was not just okay to play but respectable to play this was an oscar winning movie so i think that other actresses saw that win and like maybe felt more comfortable taking risks of being less likable Hmm. um because there there weren't that many roles like this before this and and I agree there weren't that many roles like this after this either yeah that's (laughs) but i think that you can credit this with a desire like for women to play more kind of complex and unlikable kind of villain characters. I mean, my overall takeaway from this movie is just that it could have been a little oogier. James <laughs> Conn could have been a bit more of a dirty birdie and there could have been more cockadoody horror. <laughs> I love this movie. If you haven't seen it, I think it is well worth a watch, even though I think we've spoiled a lot of it. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, we've gone pretty much beat by beat. doesn't now. matter. It's still very entertaining, even if it's spoiled. And I love it. I'm going to watch it every Halloween still. Yeah, this ended up being kind of a perfect Halloween movie. Honestly, like, I did not expect to be as scared as I was by it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I wasn't, like, tortured by the process of watching this movie at all. Like, it, it triggered things in me. But if anything, that was kind of, that felt like another layer of meaning to it that I didn't recognize before. So I'm grateful that I rewatched it. Rob Reiner's never been my most favored filmmaker of all time, but I think he did a very good version of the entertaining kinds of movies that he makes, but in a thriller horror flavor. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I mean, even if all that weren't the case, like, Kathy Bates is a force of nature in this. And, you know, it would be interesting to see someone else take on that role, but I would most certainly have to be comparing them against her performance in that because it's impossible there is somebody who uh, took on the role of annie wilkes um besides laurie metcalf on broadway was it bruce willis (laughs) no um there is a there's a show i have not watched called castle rock um it it takes a bunch of stephen king uh characters not just the villains but i guess characters and lizzie kaplan played uh annie wilkes i would watch that i guess it's like a prequel um, I would watch Lizzie Kaplan perform anything. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that because I haven't watched it, but it seems seems a little strange. I don't think it would be good in like this movie for what it is, just because she doesn't seem as physically intimidating. But I could see her playing like a good version of this if it's not the misery story that's supposed to be this kind of claustrophobic two-hander. Because right. I, I can definitely see her being like a psychologically complex character for sure. And that's all the cigarettes and champagne we have time for in this episode of When We Were Young. On our very next episode. This episode we covered Halloween times, and next episode it's Hanksgiving. <laughs> We're going to be revisiting some of Tom Hanks' most famous roles, his Oscar-nominated turn in Big, as well as his Oscar-winning role in Forrest Gump. Have you heard of it? Nope. No, Mm-mm. never heard of it. All right, you're in for you're in. I'll for watch it, and that'll be a feather in my cap, I guess. <laughs> oh, God. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you get your podcast product. 
Rate and review us five stars or more on Apple Podcasts so more people will listen to us. You can follow us on all of the social medias at www.yshow, and you can contribute to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash young so we can make more episodes for you. I have been Seth. I'm Chris. And God, I love you. That's kind of how she says it, right? Yeah, that is. That was a very good. It was very good. Move over, Lizzie Kaplan. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, Lizzie Kaplan, no. move over. <laughs> I'll be seeing you in every lovely summer's day, in everything that's light and gay. I'll always think of you that way. I'll find you in the morning sun and when the night is new I'll be looking at the moon but I'll be seeing you I'll be seeing you in every lovely summer's day I'll be seeing you in everything that's light and gay. I'll always think of you.